Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. 1 John chapter number 2, uh, we're continuing this series. If you're new with us, we're studying this book of the Bible verse by verse by verse. And uh, we started at the end of 1 John where we saw that the purpose of this letter was that John wanted believers, those that do believe on the name of the Son of God, he wanted them to have assurance and confidence and certainty about their spiritual lives. And he didn't want them to wallow in doubt or have question marks characterize their Christian life. He wanted them to have this boldness and this certainty that heaven was their home, that they did have eternal life, that their sins were forgiven, that they knew God, that, their, that God heard and answered their prayers, that the devil couldn't have them. He wanted them to have these certainties, which is so important because God does not intend for you to operate your Christian life through the lens of, of doubt or questioning or being scared even. There have been a lot of churches over the centuries. Martin Luther uh, fought this uh, very staunchly when he uh, sought to be a reformer. And he took the established church of the day and he noticed this pattern. That heaven was used as a carrot that you could be dangled in front of you. If you were good enough, then you could have heaven. And hell was used as a stick. If you were bad enough, then you'd get hell. And it was this way to coerce behavior, not to captivate hearts. It was this way to, to scare people into living for God. And if we don't scare you with this, then you may be spiritually lazy. And he began to understand that's not what the Bible says or does. He began to call that actually the damnable doctrine of doubt. That this is not healthy, this is not good. He understood what John understood, that God wants us to live from a perspective of confidence and certainty. So we're picking up where we left off last week. If you remember last week, we had just covered these, these warnings and these tests that if you uh, love God and know God, then you will keep his commandments. And if you don't keep his commandments, then you're a liar and you will love the brethren. If you hate the brethren, then you do not dwell in light, you dwell in darkness. And these staunch words, and John begins to employ this pattern that's all through the letter, that he will warn and give these tests of here's how you can know that you're saved. Here's how you can know if you have confidence and, and that God's yours and you're his. But then he'll also assure people right after that. So he does some assurance here and some confidence here in verse number 12. And he says, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And I write unto you fathers because you have known him that's from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Now he's going to take those categories and he's going to do them again. I write unto you little children because you have known the Father. I have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. Now, big picture, headline of this is that John is not just an author or just a person, but John's also a pastor. And he oftentimes communicates with his audience on the whole with the, the, in terms of endearment, little children, those sorts of things. And he pastors them right here. And he says, I just gave you stern warnings. I just gave you some, some relatively harsh words that could have even been a reprove or a rebuke if they needed to be. And now I'm going to stop. And I'm going to move from, if you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. And I'm going to move into 
maybe trying to help you with what you're thinking and feeling right now. Because on the whole, he wants assurance. He wants confidence. But it could be that maybe after these last, you know, few words that he wrote, that maybe you're not feeling really assured and really confident. So he infuses him with it again. And I'm telling you, little children, your sins are forgiven. They are. I'm telling you, you've known him that's from the beginning, Jesus. I'm telling you that, that you're, you're fighting the devil and you're overcoming and God's word is, is dwelling in you and he begins to give them this confidence, which is so important. If you lead people at all, if you're a parent, if you're a pastor, if you're a, a boss, to know that there are tough conversations that need to be had, there are things that need to be said that are uncomfortable, and I don't really want to say this, but I need to right now, and duty calls me to tell you and give you the negative feedback, but you also have to mingle that with words of love and encouragement and affirmation. And it's a beautiful, beautiful mixture of these two. It's the same thing when you parent, that you have to do discipline, right? You have to pull that discipline lever. You have to say the tough things. You have to give consequences with teeth. You have to do it. But there's the delight lever. You have to delight in them. As a pastor, there are times where you have to reprove and rebuke. But that same verse will tell you as a pastor, you have to exhort with all long suffering, right? Both. As a boss, you're going to have to say the, the tough thing, but you're also going to look for ways to praise them and encourage the good things, right? The old sandwich method that, that floated around business ideology for a long time. The praise is the bread uh, on the top and on the bottom, but the meat, the middle is the tough stuff that you have to tell them. Whether you do sandwich method or not, I don't care, but the basic concept of you need to put both these together of assurance and confidence and encouragement also with the tough things, like those need to go together. And John gets it. He's a pastor. And he pastors him and he tells him this. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on trying to break down these categories of children, fathers, and young men. But there's three basic views on this. One is that he's actually referring to age categories, like chronological age. That there are these young people, the, you know, the people at VBS. Then there are these young men that are going to teen camp or in their 20s. And then there are those that are older and maybe they're fathers now or something like that. And I, I don't think that that really makes sense. Uh, some think that it's in regard to spiritual maturity levels, that he's kind of categorizing these levels of, of spiritual maturity, that those that are new to the faith are these little kids, and those that are really mature in the faith are fathers, and those that, that are kind of in the middle, they're young men. And, and maybe, but I don't think that makes much sense either, especially because John will call his whole audience little children often through this letter. What makes the most sense to me and what I think even most uh, commentators and scholars agree on is that these are actually different aspects of each believer's life, meaning that if you know Jesus, then that you could take all of this, what's applied to children and to fathers and to young men, and he's using them metaphorically to apply to these different aspects of your life, that as a child in Jesus, you should understand some rudimentary, elemental, ABC sort of things, just like your sins are forgiven, like you would understand that truth. As, as a man and as a father, as someone grown up, you would understand the importance of relationship and that you've known Jesus, him who is from the beginning, and you can tend to, when you're young, take for granted those relationships, but as you move through life, now they become uh, tougher to come by many times, and you don't take those relationships for granted as much. You've known him that's from the beginning. And as young men, who young men are known for their strength and their vigor, that you would have the word of God dwelling in you and, and learning and growing, but you would also be fighting the devil and standing that, that really this is for all of us. And he's a big picture, he's trying to say, look, here's some assurance, here's some confidence. But then he immediately moves into another test. He has these, uh, these tests on how we live, right, these moral tests. 
He has these social tests on how we love, and he has these doctrinal tests on what we believe. And next week will be a doctrinal test. But he gives this test, a very famous passage of Scripture, and here's how we would live. Here's what we would do. And simply put, he says, we're going to love God, and we're not going to love the world. Verse number 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Now, beautiful passage of Scripture, rich passage of Scripture, but confusing passage of Scripture. Because you have to answer the question, what does world mean? And world is used not only in the Bible, but also by this author, John, in multiple ways. And if you can't define what world mean or even what lust mean, then you really are up a creek without a paddle. You're going to struggle. So let me tell you what this is not saying, and then I'll tell you what it is saying, okay? So he says, do not love the world. This does not mean, and this would be a misunderstanding of the text and a dangerous application of it, he does not mean that it doesn't matter if you steward creation well. Because world can mean the world, the physical universe, rocks and trees and rivers and that sort of stuff, right? And world is used in that way in the Bible. God created the world. He's not saying don't love that, don't care for creation, don't love creation, uh, don't steward it well, you know, it doesn't matter, who cares, pollute whatever you want, nothing matters. It's not what he's saying. When God made the world, he said it was not a distraction, but good, right? One of the first mandates for mankind is to steward that creation, to take the garden, to dress it, and to keep it. So he's not saying, hey, don't love nature, nature doesn't matter. Now, don't read the, the politics of our day into that. I'm not recommending that you just, you know, be some wholehearted, tree-hugging, you know, PETA-subscribing, vegan-eating, um, you know, zero-carbon footprint person, the end. That's what really matters. That, that's the entirety of life. I'm not saying that, okay? But he's, he's not saying, when he says, don't love the world, they don't love creation. That's not what he's saying. We're, we are to steward creation well. He's also not saying, who cares if you love unbelievers? Because sometimes world is used as... The, the people of the world, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, not whatsoever, you know, the plants and trees believe in him, but if, if you, anybody, when he says God loves the world, it's saying he loved us, right? Is he saying don't love the world, don't love the people of the world? He just told us that we had to love believers in the verse before this, so is he saying, hey, if, if they're not believers, you can just hate them, who cares about it? No. We know, John 17, that Jesus came into the world and the world hated him, but he came to reach the world. And he tells the Father, Lord, protect them because I want to leave them in the world to reach the world. He tells us that we are to love our neighbors. And how far does neighbor extend? Well, it extends, according to Jesus, even to our enemies, right? So he's not saying don't love people. He's also not saying that the body is dangerous and pleasure is evil, and somehow if, if there's something physical that's, that's good or we enjoy that we should do away with that and steer clear of it. Oftentimes this verse and others have been taken to be a, a big problem over the years and have produced what's called asceticism. Now, if I, if I had a raise of hands, who knows what asceticism is? Most of you would be like, uh, not really. Maybe I heard it before, but I'm not entirely sure what that means. But it was very popular in years gone by in church world, which was the idea that I starve my body to feed my soul. And the idea is this. I have desires and yearnings and appetites that get me into trouble. 
How many of you can attest to that? You have some desires and yearnings and appetites that get you into trouble sometimes, right? And from this comes, you know, drug addictions. From this comes alcoholism. From this comes uh, really malformed desires and sexual activity. From this comes a lot of things. And there are some that say, hey, don't love the world, love God. So what this means is you take those desires and you starve them to death. You do everything in your power to starve that out and to deny yourself and to live this life of rigorous self-denial where you never allow yourself to enjoy any of that. And that's how you will overcome those desires. That's how you will be spiritual. And it's really spirituality by subtraction, which on the surface can make sense because you do have these desires and these problems, right? But if you, if you read the Bible, especially Colossians 2.20 through the end of the chapter or 1 Timothy 4, you will find very clearly that there is an appearance of wisdom to this, but it does not work. That it actually produces will worship, that you just twist your arm behind your own back. And, and Paul will tell you in Colossians chapter number 2 that it does not restrain sinful passions. You can try to suppress them all you want, and you may succeed to some degree, but it will not work in the long run. This is why 1 Timothy 4 will say that everything that God has created, that none of that is bad in and of itself, but it depends on our use of that. How we use it determines if we're defiled or not, not that it was bad in and of itself. So the idea of loving not the world means asceticism. I just run around and I try to just take all the fun and all the pleasure out of life and I just, I unplug all the spiritual bouncy houses, right? Because you can love Jesus, but you can't do it with a smile on your face and you can't have any fun. You can't enjoy any of this. That's not true. Well, that, that's, those are my desires and that's, this is what comes from the world, so I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. No, 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 no. Look at the life of Jesus. Answer me, not a rhetorical question. Did Jesus love the world or the Father? He loved the world and that he died for them, but did Jesus love the world in the sense of 1 John chapter number 2? Did he love the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes? Did Jesus love the world in that way? No. But did Jesus have a good time? Yeah. You know what they accused Jesus of being? A wine-bibber, a glutton. Now, those were slurs. Those weren't true. He wasn't a drunk, and he wasn't a glutton. But it at least indicates that he enjoyed a good meal, right? It at least indicates that he, you know, was willing to go to the, go to the festivities of the wedding and let his hair down a little bit and enjoy himself and, and eat a good steak. And so this is not saying you have to, this is really the whole system of monkhood came from this, where I have to take a vow of silence and I can only say three words a year. I have to take, uh, even in the priesthood, a vow of poverty or a vow of celibacy. All of that is birthed out of the idea that somehow I'm more spiritual if I will deny myself. It's spirituality by subtraction, and it's, and it's, not, it's not healthy. It's not biblical. You can have a good time. If you go home today and you take a nap and you eat an eight-ounce filet, do it to the glory of God. And enjoy every bite of that steak. Enjoy it. This also is not that culture is inherently bad, and this, this happens all the time. Love not the world. So anything that the quote-unquote world or culture produces, then automatically that's bad. Stay away from it. It's all taboo. So if the culture invents some stuff called social media, Facebook or MySpace or Instagram or any of that, obviously that came from culture. So obviously it's bad. You should stay away from it. Give it a wide berth. You don't want anything to do with that. 
If we used to wear our hats forward, but now culture wears their hats backward, don't wear your hats backward. That's worldly. That's a sin. That's obviously, you know, something cultural. Stay away from that. This is, that's not what it's saying. Every culture has different parts. There are parts that you rejoice in that actually line up with God and his word. There are, there are good cultural values in every single culture that's ever existed. None of them are 100% bad from top to bottom. And the reason for that is because mankind is made in God's image and he put a moral compass in us. So even if it's on accident, we end up producing some parts that line up with God's word. There are also parts of culture that you reject wholeheartedly because they, they completely disagree with God's word. Then there are parts of culture that you redeem, that they're not, they're not there, but they could be with a few edits or tweaks. This could actually become profitable, and that is for our culture in every single decade that ever was in American history or ever will be. This is for every culture that, that's a foreign culture. These components exist in all of them, and it's not saying a wholesale, we just hate anything the culture produces. It's all bad that would make it very clean and very easy, and it, and it would certainly uh, make it more black and white, but it's not true. So what is he saying when he says don't love the world? Well, thankfully, he at least gives us some pointers because he tells us all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And then he goes further on to say, that the world that I'm talking about and those lusts, they will pass away. Those will be gone. They will not last in eternity. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So, okay, I can start to try to define this a little bit if I understand the next couple verses. So what does he mean by lust of the flesh? What does he mean by lust of the eyes? What does he mean by pride of life? And here's what he means. A lust of your body or your flesh or a lust of your eyes or the pride of life, simply put, Lust of the flesh, I want to do. Lust of the eyes, I want to have. Pride of life, I want to be. That there are desires that exist in us, in our bodies or in our eyes even, that aren't wrong in and of themselves, but when they become lusts, when they become uh, over-desires, they begin to cause you to love the world and they are now moving your allegiances away from their proper place over to the world and love of the world and away from God. So what this is saying is uh, very simple. Take a lust of the flesh, your body. Your body has certain natural desires baked into it, okay? For example, you need to eat and you need to drink. You, you can't live without that. Now, you can set aside those desires for a while, and, and, and you can fast, and you can do some of those things, but you can't do that your whole life. That is in you. That's not wrong. It's not bad. But that can become an over-desire, and it can become a desire that is no longer fitting or proper, and this legitimate desire for food or for drink can become an illegitimate desire now because either A, I cannot see myself living a fulfilled, happy life without it, and now it's an idol, or B, I am willing to set aside the laws of God in order to get it. Now you've gone from a legitimate desire to a lustful desire or a lust of the flesh, so this is where, not all the time, but sometimes, this is where eating disorders come from, is that I so want and need that or the absence of that 
to make myself feel good or look good, and you have now, I cannot see myself happy if I put that down my throat, or if I don't put that down my throat, that can become a lust of the flesh. This is where alcoholism would come from. That now I need this to be happy, I need this to work, and a lot of drunkenness comes from this. Lust of the flesh, okay? You have a need for sleep, you have a need, a, a basic instinctual need for comfort. Anyone just love living uncomfortable lives? You just, you just love, I don't want any comfort. I don't want any of the amenities. You know, I don't like pillows. I want to sleep on a brick. I don't want air conditioning. Um, if, if so, then bring a pen with needles in it and sit in the corner over here next week or something, right? Like, you, those are basic. Anything wrong with taking a nap? No. Anything wrong with wanting a nap all the time and becoming lazy? Yeah. Anything wrong with wanting to be comfortable? No. I enjoy my toes in the sand on the beach just as much as anybody else. The, the sun, it feels good. But an over-desire, where that becomes not just a, a basic desire or something that I enjoy, but it becomes an over-desire to where now I have to orientate my life to where I have to have that, now I'm unwilling to sacrifice for God or his work because of that. Now I'm unwilling to suffer for Jesus, and I, and, I, and I just try to stay clear of suffering at all costs. None of us really love suffering, but I'm going to steer clear of it at all costs because I so want comfort. Th this is our culture so much right now, especially young people that are, that are my age, who have an addiction to play. The leisure industry has exploded in ways I don't think anyone ever thought that it would because people just want to be comfortable and more comfortable and more comfortable and more comfortable and it can become so idolatrous that now I will set aside the laws of God in order to fulfill it. Now I'll take the blatant commands of generosity and I will batten down the hatches on my generosity so I can have more money so I can vacation even more. Now I will um, work not nearly as hard as I need to because I want to be comfortable or I want to be lazy. Like, you see how this works? You needing to sleep, you having a basic desire for comfort? No. But a lust of the flesh, now it becomes a problem and now you're starting to love the world because all that's going to pass away and, you're, and you're, now you're not loving the Father anymore. Lust of the eyes. Okay. You have basic desires from your eyes. So, for example, your eyes are attracted to beauty, period. And that's not a bad thing. If, if I have uh, a plate of food that is gorgeous right here, and I have a plate of food that looks like it's pig mush, you're going to want to look at one more than the other, right? If there's a picture and there's ten people, and one of them is very beautiful, and the others are average, your eyes will be drawn to the one who's beautiful. That's not inherently wrong. Now, looking at, at that in a lustful way would be wrong, but the fact that you're attracted to sunsets and to beauty, is, is, that's, that's in you. That's from God. But that can become lustful. That can become an over-desire in your own life. Well, now, I have to be beautiful at all costs. I have to do everything that I possibly can, and I become self-obsessed with how I look. I don't mind you wanting to look nice and look presentable. I tried to look nice and presentable today. 
today, I am admittedly self-conscious. Something Thursday uh, morning bit my lip twice in my sleep, and my lip was like, it's big right now, but it was like three times this big a couple days ago. And I have no idea. I feel like a junior hire walking through like with pimples on my face all day long. I've, I've, I want to look attractive too, and I, I get it. But it comes an over-desire. It's where I have to. Oftentimes, if that's an over-desire, it'll indicate itself by the friends that you keep because you can never have a friend who's as beautiful as you because they threaten you. And you can also never have friends that are like on a 10 scale, a 2, or a 3 in beauty because, eh, you know, I need to associate with people who are just a couple notches below me but still can keep up with me a little bit. This, this, will, this will manifest itself in all kinds of ways. Because you are concerned, concerned, lusting after beauty. But the world passed away and the lust thereof. That beauty will fade, will it not? Facelift all you want. It'll fall. <laughs> One day, it'll fall. But when you step back and you think about things from the perspective of eternity, and you start to think, okay, I'm going to have a glorified body one day. It's not, oh, I used to be beautiful. It's I'm going to be beautiful. I don't have to look back and long for that and lust for that and try to crave that back there and how I used to look in my youth, but I can look forward to eternity and I can let this go a little bit and I don't have to be overly concerned about it. Get it? What do your, what do your eyes want? Stuff? It's amazing as I've, as I've gone through life, I officially know that I'm a grown-up because the lust of the eyes are different now. I drive through neighborhoods and I notice people's landscaping, Right? I go to Lowe's, and there's a water heater on clearance that's 10 gallons larger than my water heater, and, I, and I'm desiring it, right? I could have more hot water. Like, I feel so old now. And a lot of those basic things I would struggle with have changed and have morphed, and now there's this lust of the eyes that exists that, man, I like that, right? Look at that house, or look at that toy, or chrome, ooh. Like, and and I, I, I want these things, and that can become, do, do you want comfortable things? Do you want toys? Do you want to have fun? At the baseline level, there's nothing wrong with that. But if it becomes an over-desire and now it starts to crowd out your generosity, now it starts to control your life, now it starts to become an idol, that's what the world pursues. And think about it, that's all the world has. They would pursue that. It's this life, the end. You go around once. If you don't get happiness here, you're not going to get anywhere else. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, the end. So they would pursue that. They would try to get all the happiness and all the comfort and all the stuff that they could amass in this life. But for someone who loves God and understands that the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever, someone who loves God understands, no, 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 this life isn't all there is. I don't have to have every pleasure, every experience, every toy, every joy. I don't have to live my life that way. Here's here's a basic lust of the eyes test. Does the idea of being generous, like giving away 10% of your income or 20% of your income or something like that, if that is outlandish to you and crazy to you, then there may be some love of the world and some lust of the eyes and just needing money and needing money wrapped up in you. He goes on to talk about pride of life. It's interesting to me that it's not just pride, period, but it is pride of life. And I think that he correlates that with how the world passes away and the lust thereof and how you're just living for this life. But pride, the idea of I want to be, and yes, we all want to be admired. We all want to be thought highly of. We don't want people to talk us down or to gossip about us. And I get it. 
That's, that's natural. But that can be so malformed. Pride can start to dominate your life. And now I, I live and act and think to please those people. This is called junior high and high school. This is what it, what it is. And now I'm, I, I have to have the spotlight. I have to have the attention. Or you run around with your feelings hurt all the time so everyone will pay you attention and, and coddle you and cuddle you and, and give you mind. You have to have the applause. You have to have the praise. You have to be in control. You have to call the shot. No one will ever tread on me. I can't give up my rights or my liberties for the good of somebody else. It's all wrapped up in pride. And he's saying these are the things. You want to talk about love of the world? Let's not make this just conceptual. Let's, let's start to talk about these categories here. This is what love of the world looks like. But my people, they don't love that. They don't live for that. My people love me. Love of the Father. No man can serve two masters. It's one or the other. You love God and you hate the world, or you love the world and hate God. James 4 will tell you that very clearly. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. You've got to choose. You have to hitch your wagon to one or the other and say, this is where my allegiances lie. The first and the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Simply put, you love God all the time with all that you have. And I'll be the first to confess, I fail at that often. Do I love God with all that I have all the time? No, I don't. Are there times where I can see these desires starting to become malformed? We even talk about the lust of the flesh and sex. A good desire, something that God designed us for. On one side of, 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 the, of the track, you can fall off and, and be prudish and say that that's nasty and dirty and, and, and run from that. But on the other side, you can have the lust of the flesh that dominates you. There's no way I can be happy without this. And whatever desire I have, there's never anything that's malformed or wrong. I bow to it and I let it guide me and yank me around and control me all the time. Is that what controls you? Is that what you live for? And I'm asking you honestly this morning to just do inventory. I can't answer that question for you. If you want to ask me my opinion, I'll do my best to give you an honest opinion, but I'm probably so far to distance from you that I'll struggle to. But you do inventory. Where do your allegiances lie? Is love of the Father being crowded out by love of the world? If it is, then you're left and have maybe two minutes. What do you do? There's two things you do. Number one, and he told you, you get perspective. Think about it. The world passes away. And all these lusts, they pass away too. But he that does the will of God abides forever. This life is not all there is. You don't have to live for that all the time. You get perspective and you allow yourself, you preach the truth to your own heart. There is an eternity. If, if I follow God and I do his will, that's what will really matter. People will last. If I invest in people, that's what will really matter. Do the will of God. Love him and love people. But then you also, you want to love God. And this can be the trick, because the text doesn't say it uh, overtly. You can be left thinking, okay, if I love the world, <clears throat> don't love God, I'm going to flip-flop these, so I'll just stop loving the world, I'll control my desires, I'll, ju I'll just try to, I'll try to get better at that, and my love of God will grow. And that's, that's not really going to work out too well. 
Or you can say, uh, my love of God, I'm just going to make it grow. What do I need to do to inflate it and to pump it up? And that's, you're getting close, but you can't just make your love grow just because you want to and snap your fingers. The real honest gospel solution is to stop, and John will tell you this as we move through his gospel, when he tells us that we love him because he first loved us and God is love, is to stop and to sit in the love of God and to think about it and to mull it over, to meditate on it, to think about that he would give himself for you, that he would love you, that he would, that he would die for you, that he would sacrifice for you, that he would love you. And you do your best to put your heart and your mind there, to think and to read, to be around other people who love God, and to allow the love of God to so overwhelm you that you just want to love him back. And what you'll find is that the, the solution to all these wrong desires it's not that you just eradicate them, period, but it's that you get a larger desire, love of God, that will eat them up. And my encouragement to you this morning is to do inventory. And if you find that there's a problem, my love of the world is too big and my love of God is too small, think about eternity and think about how much he loves you. And if you'll do that often enough, if you'll do that um, fervent enough, you watch, tell me if it doesn't start to change your heart from the inside out and you just want to love him back. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for the opportunity to study a little bit in your word. And I, I ask this morning that you would draw us closer to you. I pray that we would look more like you because of our time in 1 John 2. I pray that we would not fall into the trap of loving the world and all the temporary things that it has to offer, but, Lord, that we would live in light of eternity, that we would be amazed and overwhelmed at your love and just want to adore you. God, produce this in me. Produce this in us. We want it. This morning, with our heads bowed and just a little bit of a time of prayer, I want you, if you're a Christian in the room, to take a chance and respond to the Lord. Thank him for what he's done for you if he saved you. That's where we started. He forgave your sins. He gives you relationship. You can know him. He gives you spiritual resources. Thank him for that. If there's a love of the world that is, that is there, admit it. Be honest. Admit it. But then confess it. Turn from it. Turn to him. Remind yourself of how much he loves you. We've sang his praises this morning about how great he is, that he made the world, that he's big, he's strong, but he loves you. He's gracious toward you. He's merciful toward you. He's long-suffering toward you. He's accepting if you're not careful, you will follow the very natural impulse that when you do wrong and when you're loving the world to think that you've got to clean yourself up and make it all right, and then you can try to love God after that. No, 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 no. Even if you're in the middle of sin and darkness right now, know that He loves you. Remind yourself of His mercy and grace. Dwell in that for a little bit. 
and see if you don't want to love him back. If you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, then I want to invite you this morning to put your faith and your trust in him. The truth is that he demonstrated his love for you on a cross, that he would die for our sins. He was buried and he rose from the dead. And if you've never realized how much you need him for forgiveness, for heaven, for everything, and that you can't do it yourself, but you have to put your faith and trust in him, then I pray that right now today you would. If you've never put your trust in Jesus, then why don't you call to him and ask him to save you right where you sit. It may be as simple as praying something like this. These aren't magic words, but if you'll pray something like this, just pray, Jesus, I know that I have wrong and sin in my life, and I actually believe that you died for that. And I'm asking you to forgive me of that sin, to cleanse me. I'm asking you to accept me. I'm asking you to give me eternal life. Jesus, I cannot do it myself, so I'm asking you to do it. Would you save me? And Jesus, it's in you and you alone that I trust and I put my faith. It doesn't have to be that script. If you prayed something that's slightly off of that, it's completely fine. But if you'll put your faith and your trust in him, he promises that he'll save you, he'll clean you, he'll forgive you. He'll give you a home in heaven. Jesus, thank you. We do love you. We admit that our love is uh, lacking at times, that it is not consistent enough or fervent enough, but we want more of it. Lord, I pray that you would, in your, in your graciousness and kindness, produce this in us. And there's a lot of ways that I would love for Harvest Baptist Church to be categorized, but I hope and pray that we can be categorized as a bunch of people that just love Jesus. Thank you for loving us first. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, here's what we're going to do. We have two minutes of an announcement video this morning, and right after that, we're going to go into our uh, ministry fair, and uh, you'll, you'll have a few extra minutes. Oftentimes, we're getting out of here at uh, quarter till or even ten till, so you'll have a, a solid ten minutes before you go get your kids. Don't leave your kids there forever, okay? Don't take half an hour. Because those workers, you know, they, they love your kids, but they want to be done with them. So um, uh, take some time. If you need to go ask a question or drop a card off at a table, I hope that you will. My prayer is that there's at least 50 different people in our church that get plugged into ministry that are not right now, currently today, that we would have at least 50 this week that jump in. So uh, watch this video. As soon as it's done, you go ahead, go to a table, give the cards, and ask any questions you need. Hey church, we're glad you joined us this morning. We have a couple exciting things happening on our campus and we wanted to take a minute and let you know about them. First, our child dedication is coming up on Sunday, July 31st. This is an opportunity for parents to publicly commit to partner with the church to raise their child in a gospel-centered environment. This important event occurs twice a year, once in the winter and once in the summer. If you're interested in participating in this special service, please contact the church office no later than July 25th. One of the best ways to have Harvest feel like home is to jump in and serve. This may sound daunting to some, but we know without a doubt you will find joy in investing your time to help others. 
and you'll find new friendships along the way. Today, after both services, you will have the opportunity to learn more about our ministries by visiting the tables in the lobby. We hope that you will consider and pray about jumping in and serving in one. This summer, we are looking for volunteers to be part of an evangelism team. Consider joining us on Thursday, July 21st from 5 to 8 as we hand out gospel material at Saxonburg's Mingle on Main or New Kensington's Fridays on 5th on Friday, July 22nd. We are also taking a team to PNC Park on Saturday, July 23rd from 6 to 7.30 to hand out gospel tracts to those going into the game. If you're interested or you'd like more information, please contact the church office. Lastly, don't forget to join us for a church picnic at Northmoreland Park on July 24th from 4 to 9 p.m. The church will provide hot dogs, hamburgers, drinks, chips, and paper products. We need you to sign up so that we can order the right amount of food. Sign up! We're asking people to bring a side dish or dessert to share. There are plenty of tables, but you can bring your favorite chair if you'd like. There will be softball games, volleyball games, cornhole, and a playground and games for kids. Please register on the church website today. Thank you for spending time with us today. Remember to follow us on social media so you can stay connected with all that's happening in and around our church throughout the week. Until next time, have a great week.